1: I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up, a podcast about books, writers, life, and love, and all things literary. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Lit Up for this week. I couldn't be more excited to have the Pulitzer Prize-winning author Jennifer Egan here to close out the year. What a 2017 it's been. Thank you so much for listening and thanks for all your support and comments. I'm going to be taking about a month and a half off and we'll be coming back around February 1st with a whole new website and a whole lot of incredible authors lined up for you for the year. I'll also be able to announce some really exciting partnerships and collaborations which will make Lit Up even bigger and better, I hope. But for now, let's enjoy this conversation I had in New York with Jennifer Egan about her most recent novel, Manhattan Beach. It might be one of my favorites of the year, and I really suggest it as a gift for anyone this holiday time. Here's a little about the book to give our context, to give context to our conversation. Anna Kerrigan is our main character and we meet her when she's 12 years old when she accompanies her father to visit Dexter Stiles, a man who she gleans is crucial to the survival of her father and her family. She's mesmerized by the sea and the house that Dexter Stiles lives in and she really can't work out what is this kind of electric charge between the two men. Then years later, when her father has disappeared and the country is at war, Anna is working at the Brooklyn Naval Yard where women are for the first time able to hold jobs jobs that only once belonged to men. She becomes the first female diver, one of the most dangerous and exclusive occupations at the yard, repairing ships uh, that will help the American war effort. Then one evening at a nightclub, she meets Dexter Stiles again. And from here, she begins to kind of start to understand the complexity of it of her father's life. I'm gonna leave it there and we'll go into this conversation. We're gonna get into kind of gangsters, prohibition, Um, what it was like for women during this time. It's one of the loveliest conversations and I hope you enjoy it. And again, I'll be giving you updates on Instagram and Twitter at Lit Up Show uh, for the next month or so. Um, So follow along and uh, we'll get ready for the next year together. It's my (laughs) pleasure to have Jennifer Egan here this morning. I have loved your work for so long and it's just an honor to have you here. And I have to say, this was the book of the year for me. I started it and knew I was meant to be taking notes because we were, you know, all I was hoping to have a conversation with you at some point. And I would find myself a chapter through and I go, oh, I forgot to underline anything. And not because there weren't significant, beautiful things, just because I was so drawn in and it had been the book I've been looking for. So thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. So I'm going to draw on something that I uh, read that you said in an interview that every year until you were 35, you threatened to take the police exam and your husband was like, oh, is she going to do it? Because you thought about seriously becoming a police woman. Is that true?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess in a way it's been a teeny bit storified, um, probably by me. Um, it, there's a weird thing about talking about one's life that you sort of, I find myself kind of polishing it in a way that feels kind of false, um, which I don't like. But um, but I think that it is true to some degree that I, I had always felt like that possibility existed for me, and I liked the thought that it wasn't too late to do it. Um, and I definitely had an application <laughs> Well then that's something. Um, yeah, no, I really I mean I'm I'm interested in police work. Um and I've done ride alongs with, with cops in New York and uh I do have a lot of kind of a law enforcement inclination in the Chicago part of my family, which is the kind of Irish American part. Um my grandfather was a police commander, and uh, my sister um, was a, worked with, with the U.S. Attorney's Office for years under Patrick Fitzgerald, and my uncle was a defense attorney, and my brother-in-law was a U.S. Marshal. Oh, wow. So there is that kind of, um, I don't know, it just feels like a sort of affinity, a familial affinity. And also there's just something so, I, I feel like somehow police work and and fiction have become very intertwined. Um, you know, it, it's it's sort of a genre, a real-life genre, literary genre, kind of like detective fiction. Um, and so I guess I, I just thought, well, I'll be so close to all those stories if I'm actually a cop. And um, plus, it would be really interesting.
1: <laughs> I mean, we're lucky you didn't become a policewoman because we have these books from you. But... I'm doing this thing where I read and you're like, oh, another thing. What is she going to pull out about (laughs) my life that I have to talk about? But before we get into the book, um, also that you had this year after school where you became a writer, that you travelled. Is that true that there was this period of time that um, you talk about the solitude of that year or travelling in isolation in that time, perhaps without social media, that allowed you to develop that idea?
2: Yes, that is really true. Um I mean I really first of all it was it, there was a kind of solitude that was possible then that I think is very hard to achieve now. Um and and even hard to imagine. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I went to, I took a year off between high school and college. I had thought I wanted to be an archeologist. So the first thing I did that year was paid to go on a little dig in Campsville, Illinois. Uh, that was not what I had hoped for. I had hoped to be paid to go to Greece or Africa, but that was really not realistic. And I quickly realized that, but I had saved, I had been working for a couple of years and had saved money. So I went on this little dig, and I realized that I I didn't really like the actual physical work of archaeology. That it was more a fantasy, of any, than anything else. And the fantasy involved, you know, finding whole artifacts, you know shallowly buried (laughs) that I could unearth (laughs) with a dramatic flourish. Um, And it didn't involve broiling hot, digging, or not even digging, squatting on a square meter of earth with a scalpel. So even though it was fascinating, I have to say, and I do still think about that dig, um, by the end of September, I kind of knew that my whole, not only did I not have a plan for my year off, but my whole life plan had been somewhat invalidated. So I just spent most of that year working to get money to go to Europe, which I had never done Mm -hmm. and was incredibly excited to do. And, you know, being from California, Europe was a really long way away. People didn't just go there. Uh, If you wanted to get out of the country, you went to Mexico, which was practically right out the door. And we had done that um, numerous times. So I got a backpack and a ticket on Freddie Laker Airways. Oh, wow. <laughs> which gets a chuckle of recognition from people in a certain age group. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I went there and started traveling. And it was really, I, I mean, it was, it was thrilling and confusing to be to see other cultures before I really had any knowledge of art history or, or history, frankly. Um, you know, I, I was just sort of a kid, uh, but it was, and so with the freshness and the newness are what I really remember, but I was also very isolated. I had, there was a nine hour time difference between me and my mom. Um, it, it was, you know, in those days there was no, there weren't even answering machines. So if I failed to reach her, oh, yeah. uh, at, in one of the international calling centers where I would have to wait my turn and then pay to call, there would be no record of the call having occurred. Um, and I was a pretty anxious teenager. Uh, and so I, st- I would start, I started having these kind of panic attacks, which were unnamed at that time. I had no idea what, what was happening, um, only that I thought I was kind of going crazy. And um, so, but, and yet there were also some really good times. I don't want to make it, I mean, I, I'll never forget, you know, some of the people I met, uh, of course, none of whom I'm in touch with anymore, because there was no way to hold on to people in quite the way that we can now. Um, I don't even know a lot of their last names, mm-hmm. so it was there were there were bright, exciting moments and adventures and train rides and you know encounters, but there was this kind of undertow of fear and and isolation and kind of dread. That was also present. So the two really commingled. And somehow, out of that, Came this commitment to writing. I think it had already existed to some degree, and I, again, I'm very wary of the, of these sort of stories that we burnish about our own past that are kind of fake, just to try to please have enough, so, yeah, have <laughs> Yeah. Um, but but the truth is, I certainly went into that year thinking I would be an archaeologist, and I came out knowing that I would be a writer. Exactly what the steps were, I'm not quite sure, but I really hit bottom while I was traveling. I mean, I ended up having to go home in a quasi-emergency state. Um, Not like really, but like I called my mom and I was just, I was a basket case and I ended up going to the airport in Rome and basically spending a huge amount of my money in traveler's sex just, just buying a ticket back, which almost killed me, because I had worked so hard for that money, and I was I was being so careful with it, but I just had to get back. And, um, and I didn't know if I could go to college, actually, right huh. away, I really felt like I wasn't up to that. Um, but my mother memorably said, what else are you gonna do? Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. And How I think she was thinking, mom? I don't want you sitting here. M- meanwhile, her marriage to my stepfather had ended in the in the prior a few months, and I believe she had actually moved into a new apartment while I was gone. So our house was gone. Oh my god! All of my stuff was gone. So you even came back disoriented again. Very. And, and I was terrified again. Those, that terror would, would persist. And it, I even continued to have those panic attacks a bit into college because I, I still had this thought that it was all going to just drift away. Like I, I couldn't really do it. I couldn't live a mainstream life. I really thought that might be true.
1: And when you, get in, when you started writing, was there a sense that that was a calm... Or a place that you could lose yourself or transport yourself? Had that anything to do with the anxiety or not so much?
2: Yes. I think that uh, one thing I noticed was that even when I was really frightened, I could still read, Mm. which is interesting. And I remember reading a collection of short stories by Dickens um, that somehow I could still kind of lose myself in it a little bit. And that was very striking. And then the conversations that i had with myself on that trip both in good times and in bad were huge i mean maybe you know the relationship i developed that i didn't lose track of unlike the amazing people i still wish i could find was the relationship i developed with myself and that's that's what i think was so valuable about it like i could write even in that terror mm. and then in the in the good times you know seeing sights or just doing whatever we did, you know, getting like chickens in the marketplace and eating them by a river. Um, I could write about all of that and, and it somehow felt like it was my, that it was an essential part of my relationship to the world around me, to my own experience and both positive and negative. And so it just felt like a vocation, I guess.
1: There's a quickening you describe when you've feel when you found something that you want to write about or a, a kind of an energetic thing that happens to you. I guess what does that feel like and how for the novel Manhattan Beach that we're meant to talk about and we will, did that discovery or that feeling happen? I mean, it obviously happened many, many years ago because it took a long time. And how did you sustain that feeling?
2: It... You know, it's a little like um, following trapdoors or something, or the the, the suggestion of trapdoors. So the first the first quickening was just about the idea of New York during World War II, and then the next quickening was really about the waterfront, just this sense of like, oh yes, this is this is where it is. Looking at photos of the city at that time. And then the next quickening was about the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and I remember that really happening when I visited for the first time, which would have been about 2005. It, and the Navy Yard was actually very different then than it is mm-hmm. now. It's sort of incredible how much it's changed in the last you know, t- 10, 12 years. Um, but there was, it felt like a real artifact of the war then, I mean, there were buildings that were kind of falling into the water still. There, were, there was a building that had war maps on the walls. And I just got an email recently that that building is now like sparkly and, and totally refurbished. And I was invited to the grand reopening. So it's changing constantly, but that's, it had an almost gothic, kind of a watery, waterfront gothic feeling to it a post-war gothic feeling, Um, and that was really exciting. Then there was a definite quickening at the mere sight of the Mark V diving dress. When did you
1: see that first?
2: I saw it in an article uh, about someone. uh, It was basically a, uh, a memory by someone who had been a civilian diver at the yard. Uh, and he just published it in a sort of Navy magazine. I've never even been able to find this online. I actually encountered a physical copy of this at the New York Public Library. I mean, I feel so lucky. Like, if I hadn't, if that hadn't happened, I would never have even known that civilian diving was a part of ship repair. I had no idea. Um, so that was a big one, and I felt like the, cl- the, the closer I got to diving, the more... I mean, ideally, the quickening happens, and then if I push it intensifies. It's not enough to just have a sort of whisper of a sensation of something being interesting. It needs to feel like it's going somewhere. And um, so that was a big one. And then the the final quickening, which I truly resisted, was about shipping, (laughs) cargo (laughs) shipping. And just, and the merchant marine. How did you resist it? You'd like, oh. Well, I kept thinking, I can't do this. It's too hard. Like, I already was dealing in so many realms of technical knowledge about which I walked in with nothing (laughs) Um, that I felt like it was just too many things that I didn't know about. It was adding something to that list that actually would require more knowledge than any of the others. I mean, people are obsessed with boats. They're, you know, World War II shipping, are you kidding me? I mean, there are people who've devoted their lives to knowing that stuff, you know and and the the thing about anything military is it's all recorded you know it's like baseball every stat every measurement it someone knows it so the thought of trying to blunder my way into that and and be persuasive when i've i've never sailed I, I just don't know anything about ships but there was no stopping it and and in a way the the positive side of this quickening feeling is that it's thrilling like when I'm pursuing that into something deeper like for example when I first went to the Ni- Jeremiah O'Brien which is a liberty ship um, which is docked in San Francisco it actually is still functional it takes little voyage very little voyages very slow <laughs> voyages um, but the first time I went on it I just thought oh my god I mean so it, it, it's this kind of heightening of experience that's really exciting. And, and I think back to your question about what was it about that, that trip to Europe and my relationship to writing that made it feel so essential. It was this sort of this sense that writing was my way of achieving a kind of heightened transcendent, that's not too big a word, experience or relationship to real life. It has a kind of spiritual quality, although I don't even like the word spiritual because there are all mm-hmm. kinds of associations with that that, that don't feel, um, I don't know, that don't feel right to me. But it, it is a kind of elevated, excited feeling that I think to some degree we humans live for. I mean, it's yeah. it's what we look to drug experience for um, sometimes religious experience it's this that kind of being lifted out of the ordinary. It's such a joy um, and that's what writing gives me and and even the pursuit of writing through these realms that feel kind of hot or important that's all part of the process and it's fun
1: <laughs> It's I mean it sounds fun also feels that when that must happen and you think oh no it's you know it's getting my interest is peaked this is going to be add another two years that Ah! is literally
2: what I was thinking (laughs) You, (laughs) you can't help it but you go oh here we go I did and I I really it was I it wasn't only that I thought it would add two years I thought it would be impossible I just did not think I could pull it off but you did well, I hope so. Um, I mean, I did my best, I'll, you did, I'll tell yeah. you that. And and I certainly enjoyed doing it, which is also a very important thing because especially with this book where I really had serious doubts about whether it was all going to work out, I came to... Um, to honor and, and, and appreciate the experience of doing it more than I have with other books because mm. I felt like maybe that was all I was going to end up with when it was all over.
1: Yeah, that fluency in a world. I mean, is there a period where... Um, I think I've also read that you kind of have said that sometimes there's a dullness when you write about people you know, that that is a place that it's actually... Mm. Diving into worlds that are so different from yours—that that is where all the energy comes from and all the excitement comes from. Yeah, um, and yet you have to wait till you have that fluent language to, I guess, ma- match up to your vision of of it.
2: Well, usually it doesn't require so much work, frankly. I mean, if I'm if I'm imagining other. Other people or situations that are more contemporary or don't require essentially learning another language to be fluent in, then it, it happens more easily. But it's still crucial that I not feel like I'm overlapping with my own life mm-hmm. because that feels inert to me. It just, because I think in a way it's exactly the fact that there's no possibility of transcendence if all I'm doing is recounting what I already know. Yeah. It just feels like. You know, it feels like a loop. It's like a, a journey that's going to lead me right back to where I already mm. am. It, it seems really uninteresting to me. I mean, I have—I really adore my life, and I adore, I adore the convention, the conventionality of it in a way because I had a very jumbled childhood in a lot of ways. So for me, having a stable, conventional life is just a thrill, frankly. Mm. But I have no—I'm not. I'm not. I feel no sense of awe or excitement at the kind of secrets of my own life. Right of
1: examining. These I, I'm just. Bits. It's.
2: I, I couldn't be further from the point of view w- in which one's own life is a sort of mystery to be to be plumbed. I, I don't feel that at all. <laughs> I, I I write to it's escape so refreshing. from my life. I could, I, 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 it's hard for me to find the words to tell you how much, how you much do- I don't understand what it must be like to think that way. <laughs>
1: <Good>. <laughs> I love how it seems so counter to our world right now. I mean, I read, I think you've said too that the reason you love writing is also the reason you love reading, is that transportation. And um, I just, Um, I don't think I had an experience as intense as yours, but when I was an exchange student, I came to America and I knew no one. And it was that year of loneliness. But I also had a structure and I made friends. But I would just retreat to a book. I'd go, it's Saturday night, you don't really have friends yet. Well, you know, and you'd be bit, woe is me. And then I'd go, wait a second, but you have a book to read and you can just get into bed and read a book? And I would just... It's almost been this soothing like a way whenever I'm anxious or sad, I go, Oh wait, there's this thing I can do that makes me so happy and I would just retreat to that and it but I had to be that lonely. I'd never had I'd never I'd always just had so many people to fill the mm-hmm. space. So I just yeah, I loved
2: Yeah, I mean I, that. I wonder I mean I feel like you know I, when I look at kids today, I you know, when I look at my teenagers and sort of their milieu, it feels very crowded with people because everyone is in touch with everyone constantly, even when they're alone in a room. And it's hard not to even speculate about this without sounding like an old fogey. But it, it's it, it's interesting to me to wonder about how what solitude means now and how people will have these sorts of reckonings. Uh, now, because it will have a different quality than it used to. But I I read somewhere, someone said, there was a writer who said that he or she thought that all fiction was just going to be autobiography at some point. And I thought, why? I mean, I don't understand the inevitability of that or the desirability of that. And all I can say is, if that happens and that's all people want to read, I'll just turn to journalism because I have no interest in writing that at all. At all.
1: (laughs) So you discovered that, you know, you have this quickening with the Navy Yard and the ships and things. And then did you know which period you wanted to focus on uh, right away? Or was that, did you come through that, through the research?
2: I knew, no, I think that the, I knew that New York during the war, that was really my starting point. I had no idea what New York was like during the war, I should say. But I that I somehow knew that that's what I was interested in. And I think the reason is just that wars are kind of fascinating for the the um kind of shifting of boundaries and rules that that they often bring about. And so I guess I, I mean, not really having experienced a war exactly, I still somehow just knew that, I guess, just from reading over years. And so I was interested in what that meant in America and in New York. I wasn't thinking about women specifically at the beginning, but almost immediately I was, because as soon as I started looking into the history of the Brooklyn Navy Yard, I was reminded, of course, of the what we all know, which is that women were in, invited, in fact, kind of begged to do industrial work during the war. And, that, and I knew that at the Navy yard there were almost 5,000 women of the 70,000 total at the height of the war, which is actually not a very large percent, but still there had time. been none before. So, and I had been wanting to write a book in which I focused specifically on being female, Um, I think partly because my work generally skews toward the male. And in fact, even in this one, I still ended up with two male protagonists and one female. But um, yeah, so I I think I started to sense that this would be a good atmosphere in which to write about the actual experience of being a woman in the world and trying to have power, to gain power, um, to live in a strong way. I somehow found that a hard thing to write about in contemporary life. Um, And it seemed exciting to try to do it during the war because the rules for women changed very drastically. Um, And scrutiny of women changed too and was lifted to some degree. Everyone was very distracted by other things. And that's just always a really dramatic, a rich environment for fiction. Like, in my story collection, it's, it, many of the stories are about people away from home, like traveling in sort of faraway mm-hmm. locales. And I think one reason I'm very drawn to that is that often the rules of normal life are suspended in, in other places. So things become possible that wouldn't otherwise be possible, and that's a very rich environment, I find, to write about.
1: Well, even that transition, I hadn't really understood how the gangster role or the role of the syndicates kind of crisscrossed with the lifting of prohibition. I mean, obviously it makes sense, but could you talk a bit about how that crossover happened and how unusual it was, I guess, for us now? I mean, these um, gangster types were so romantic and kind of elegant and sexy, which, you know, know, we romanticised, but it felt like at the time that was actually quite, real
2: yeah I was that was fascinating and I didn't know that at the beginning I, I the gangster part sort of came over me slowly I didn't I didn't imagine it there right at the beginning although as soon as I started doing any real research on the waterfront I immediately bumped up against you know crime and corruption. But that was more the kind of Irish waterfront, which which is really what the movie on the waterfront is mm-hmm. about, which is which is drawn straight from a series of newspaper exposés of actual corruption on the waterfront. They kind of ironed out the Irish American part in the movie um, to make it, I think, more universal and maybe not, you know, prejudicial. But it really was it was the Irish waterfront. Um, but I it's funny. I feel like my real awareness of the relationship between the more Italian mob, but certainly not all Italian. I think my awareness of the importance of prohibition to the development of the more Italian mob that was known as the syndicate came about oddly through a trip to Philadelphia that we took as a family. Because this is the funny thing. My family life actually does lead me to some very interesting discoveries. It's just not interesting in and of itself. So we went to Philadelphia um, just for a few days over spring break just to experience another city. We went to the Mint, um, and we went to this uh, exhibit about prohibition. And I'm not quite sure where this exhibit was. But it was, you know, very kid-friendly, so they had, like, cutouts of, of gangsters, and, you know, they had a mock speakeasy where you had to peek through a little yeah. slitted, you know, opening in a door, and then you could go in, and they had little dance steps laid out on the floor so you could do some of the dances of the time. So it was, you know, very kid-oriented. But the real, they, it was all about prohibition, and they made some really interesting points. One of them was that prohibition was, uh, it seems insane to us now, but the amount that people drank before Prohibition was just unbelievable. And it really did reduce Uh. the amount that Americans drank significantly. So that was one thing I learned, which didn't really come into play in the book. But the other point they made very clearly was that organized crime as we know it got organized to become A liquor distributor. (laughs) And it was, it behooved these gangsters to work together nationally um, and to work in a more corporate way locally to do the job of getting this liquor moved, acquired, and sold. It was totally fascinating. And I, in the moment, I didn't think, oh, this, this affects my book. I'm not quite sure where I was in the book at that point, but but I could feel that it would make a difference. And it, it, it sort of dovetailed with my reading and also viewing. Because I watched a lot of movies as I was thinking about this book. Because I knew I wanted to use the genre of the noir in certain ways. Mm. But it really... It, it, they didn't make the point specifically that gangsters became kind of cool and, and had a cultural currency because they were liquor distributors. I guess I maybe made that leap myself but it sort of went without saying it
1: does because also when it becomes legal they they have the networks and then why wouldn't you open a fabulous nightclub
2: well and even uh yes for sure and also what are you going to do to to um make up for that lost income stream I mean, they, you know, when when prohibition ended, it was a disaster for (laughs) organized crime. And that's really, I mean, again, this is a little inside baseball, but some of the reading suggested that a lot of the more extreme activities of organized crime, like drug dealing, prostitution, a lot of that was not a big deal until prohibition ended and then you know all these channels were, this huge apparatus existed with no business anymore huh. to keep it to keep the money flowing and then there was a lot of dissent culturally within organized crime because italian uh, um italian americans tended to be uh, less prudish than the Irish Americans and specifically over the the issue of prostitution, they really disagreed. Irish Americans did not want to be involved with that. Um, and so anyway, various fissures yeah. developed and and you know I don't really get into all that but uh, but the long and short of it is that for 14 years, 1919 to 1933, Organized criminals were essentially liquor dealers, part of polite society to a surprising extent, lived in nice buildings with, you know, fancy people and were somewhat accepted as gangsters, (laughs) um, otherwise known as liquor dealers. And culturally, that's a little hard for us to relate to, but it was certainly kind of fun for me to work with that. Oh, and all, did, were
1: there photographs from that period of the movie stars with these?
2: Uh, kind of I don't. E- I mean, I don't things? know about photographs. There were there were interesting accounts and narratives about the interactions between these people. For example, um, Walter w- Winch- is it Walter Winchell? Winchell? I think it's Winchell. I don't know. Um, so, for example, Walter Winchell, who was a gossip columnist. Was very friendly with certain mob figures, and I believe there was one period where he was actually f- afraid for his life, and moved away for a time, and then came back. There was a guy named Oni Madden, who, whom I actually allude to directly in um, Manhattan Beach. He had a um, he had a beer be- brewery during Prohibition, and they they are all trying to describe what makes his beer taste so terrible. I just made that up, but.
1: Um, <laughs> The but bodies, the dead bodies in the brewery. Yeah. yeah,
2: exactly. And um, and so he was in jail for a while, and then came back out. So there's a book called The Nightclub Era, which is long out of print, but kind of a cultural history of of the 20s by a, a real insider. Um, and he was clearly very friendly with Oni Madden and had long talks with him. But Oni Madden really was a gangster. Um. And then Oni Madden sort of tried to go straight, but it didn't really work. Some of these guys would have to kind of disappear because they wanted to be—they didn't want to be in the mob anymore, but the mob didn't really want to let them go. So I can't say that there—it's there may be photographic evidence, but I guess for me, so, it more came through these out-of-print books, in which it becomes very clear that these organized crime figures hung out with members of. "Quote unquote respectable society," that they were in essence respectable, um, and and how close they even were to violent crime anymore becomes very hard to know. Um, but they definitely had, um, you know, nightclubs and associations. There was a guy named Frank Costello who was a definitely a crime boss, and he lived in an apartment building on Central Park. And in one of my conversations with a kind of longtime New Yorker, because I did a lot of those just to mm-hmm. sort of acquaint myself with details I wouldn't find in books, he mentioned that the building he had grown up in was he Frank Costello was their like neighbor down the hall. Um, it's hard to imagine, you know, living down the hall from someone who was a known gangster and kind of feeling okay about that now that becomes, that's really hard to fathom. I mean, we would be worried about, you know, crime and guns and danger, but somehow then it was, it seemed to be a a job title that was (laughs) a little little more acceptable. Mysterious and sexy.
1: Coming back to Anna Kerrigan, our heroine, um, is she based on anyone specific? Or I heard that you had interviewed or spoke with a lot of, you were lucky enough to speak with some of the civilian divers who might have passed away now, so it was lucky that you started researching the book so many years ago. but did they have stories of women that they'd worked
2: with well uh, i i haven't i didn't speak with very many civilian divers okay. in fact not any okay uh, the, I've spoken with military divers from the army mm-hmm. who have a very um, kind of sophisticated veterans association and they meet every other year for a reunion and they, one of the things they offer to their membership is the possibility of diving in the old Mark V dress in a tank. Um, and so I actually got to be dressed in that, in that diving suit while I was attending a reunion in 2009. The women that I interviewed were all n- Naval Yard employees mm-hmm. Um, who had worked there in their 20s, and I was talking to them in the first decade of the 21st century when they were in their 80s. I guess the short answer to your question is Anna is definitely not based on anyone, because, again, that I do that very badly. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that starts to be me writing about my own experience, which I don't like. I, I like that feeling of discovery. However, by the time I was actually writing Manhattan Beach, which was 2012, I had been having conversations with women about their work at the Navy Yard for such a long time. I mean, really for five years, between 2005 and 2010, I was having a number of those conversations every year. So some of those anecdotes Mm -hmm. and details had become almost like a memory bank for me to draw upon. So some of Anna's experiences come directly out of those conversations, for example she meets her friend Nell at the Navy Yard after watching Nell fall off a bicycle. And that description of riding along a pier and sliding on gravel and falling was something that came right out of one of the conversations that I had had with a woman who was part of an oral history project I was working on with the Navy Yard. And she was very pretty and blonde. In her, Even in her 80s, you could just see that she was just a very elegant, you know, beautiful woman. And she described borrowing a bike and riding along and then falling and realizing only after she fell that this wall she was riding alongside was not a wall but a ship, and hanging over the side were about a hundred sailors jeering <laughs> and laughing at her, and she she was you could feel her shame over it even all those years later. And there were lot and she and her job had been measuring small parts, so that too because Anna's work begins as um, a measurer, that all came from this one woman's. Experience, But there were a lot of other things like there were there were oral histories that I read that were conducted by some of my colleagues who and but I wasn't present for that contained other details that were really useful in my description of Anna's life, like the big the barrels of fruit for that were stored in the cellar for wine, um, just all kinds of the textures of daily life. Um, you know, how laundry was done. I think all of that ended up going. But there, there, I had enough of those conversations over enough years okay. that I stopped having to necessarily bring a detail to mind and details started just coming to mind. And that's the state that I'm always trying to reach.
1: And do you think that state comes after that the research has is just has been absorbed by you so you can flow?
2: Um, I think sometimes it can come quickly. Like, for example, with the diving, just to write certain... I mean, to write any scenes of someone diving, it was not enough even to have worn the Mark V briefly um, or to have talked to a lot of divers, as I did at that reunion in 2009. I still needed to have very specific conversations about the, the... Technicalities of diving before I could even write a crude first draft mm-hmm. containing a diving scene. I, it was, it is so specific and so technical on some level. Even if I'm not going to be talking about the technology, if I don't know the technology, I mean, people can't breathe underwater. So I can't just send someone down there. I, it just doesn't, I can't do it. But I found that just a lengthy conversation with a f- Three divers, let's say, about some of that would give me enough that I could blunder my way through a crude first draft of a scene like that, and then I was always refining. Uh, and there was one woman diver that I did spend a lot of time talking to who it was the first female Army diver, and if you can believe it, she did not dive until the early 80s. Wow. I think there, that I've read about the, the first Navy divers were maybe five to ten years earlier, but even then there were only a couple of them. I mean, this was not a world where women were welcome or African-Americans. In fact, there's a whole movie about, I think, the first African-American master diver. um, Cuba Gooding Jr. plays the guy, and Robert De Niro's in the movie too. And it's not a totally successful movie, but very realistic about diving. Um, So this was a very closed world. But this woman was very helpful, just... In talking about the physicality of diving, I mean, certain things that you just wouldn't think about, like menstruation. Imagine Mm -hmm. how problematic that would be while diving. We're just, that's a complication that might not occur to someone until you talk to someone about it, but it makes a lot of sense that it would be an issue. Um, Obviously, not one that ever came up talking to all the male divers that I interviewed. And the prejudice that this woman dealt with was extreme. And in fact, she felt forced out of diving by that prejudice, ultimately. And she is African-American, but race was not the issue. It was gender.
1: There was. I mean, I, I think when Anna first goes down, her excitement over diving kind of over, overtook me, too. I think... I felt the panic of her going in the suit and going under, but through her eyes, it was like you started to breathe like her and see. Well, an, another surprise I had was that you can't see underwater. I didn't know that it was that you were blind almost, and that the divers would sometimes just close their eyes and it was all on feel. I mean, how do they, how do you rely on touch underwater?
2: I know. It is, it is really strange. I didn't know that either, and at first I was very disappointed because I <laughs> wanted to describe what Anna saw, but then it was sort of interesting, and this happened a lot. It was almost as if I had known in some part of myself because we know right from the start, and this was true right from when I began writing, that she has this sort of ability with her hands mm. that's really uncanny. And that was all there, even before I knew that she was going to be a diver. So it was strange. I mean, at first I was disappointed because I thought, oh, I'm losing a whole dimension of this experience that I had thought would be really fun to write about. But then it was almost as if I closed my eyes as a writer and felt how much more I could do just using touch and not relying so much upon sight as we all do in our visually saturated culture, Um, the way they do it is just uh, through practice and experience. I mean, it's hard for me to know because I don't know what I could do in three-fingered gloves, but, you know, I mean, our hands are incredibly sensitive. I mean, I know just reading, like, studies about how the fingertip can detect just a tiny... Change in in surface or um, you know any small unevenness is so instantly detectable. I think we can do a tremendous amount with our hands,
1: and um, maybe when that those other senses are blocked off, yeah, everything else becomes heightened. I really did feel. I love that because I like you probably writing it. I felt blinded. Obviously, I'm reading it, but I was so inside the experience.
2: One thing that was kind of fun, and I think one thing that drew me to the sea, which is obviously such an important part of this book, and and it really has been, in a way, an important part of all of my books, is that it's always both literal and metaphorical. Somehow, you know, our, our speech is saturated with metaphors of the sea and of going underwater, being submerged. I mean, if you pay attention to your own language, you'll be astonished at how many of those metaphors we all use. Um, and so there's something kind of deep, almost feel, archetypal feeling about writing about someone being submerged in the sea. It feels somehow like the literal thing and and something more than that. Uh, so that was just... it it, it was really fun to to kind of go there and really do that. And yet it also is a a real thing that she's doing to such an extent that I had to do so much research just to write about it persuasively, especially since I've never dived. I've never scuba dived. I'm afraid to. (laughs) I don't have her courage or even a part of it.
1: (laughs) I wonder if because we were all in the womb in fluid that we have a kind of sense memory of being underwater. Uh, I don't else? know. I feel like I love water, but I grew up kind of as a water baby.
2: Well, the funny thing is, I think there's such a, there's something very childlike about our relationship to the water. And I'm sure we all, you know, remember in some way being bathed or being held mm. in the water. And yet water is so Un- unbelievably inhospitable. I mean, we cannot breathe there, and it will kill us. Yeah. So it is. It has a strangely dual, paradoxical quality of being inviting, enveloping, soothing, and yet totally deadly. So again, it's yeah, it's sort it's of metaphorical part. and and literal. Um, but when I talked to divers about how they felt about being in the water, it was amazing how much. For most of them, it felt like a vocation, just like writing was for me. Like, um one diver I spoke to, someone who helped me a lot and actually vetted the manuscript ultimately, he told me that his father, the first time he'd ever dived, he was out in the water with his father, and his father, like, dropped something over the edge of the boat by accident and said, like, threw, <laughs> threw his son in and said, go get it. <laughs> oh, gosh. So that was... And that, so it was, you know, pretty sort of frightening, but also a conversion experience. I mean, basically, these people love to be in the water. And that was exciting, too. Like, that that hadn't gone away, even after years and years of doing it for their work. And And it's a very industrial sort of job. I think that's also easy to... Not think about. I mean, these are these are engineers. Often they are doing engineering work under the water, and yet the feeling of being in the water, the excitement of being in the water, is a big part of what makes that job, uh, you know, fulfilling for them.
1: Well, and I read that two halves, two different halves of ships, battleships, were f- were welded together to make one ship. Is that right? Were they two different halves? I'm just thinking of the divers. Underwater,
2: well, welding that, that kind of work would not. I mean, that would have been done. Raised. That would have been done in dry dock. Yeah, and that's
1: still amazing.
2: It is amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that. diving is an, impar- an important part of ship repair in that divers would patch ships from underneath, and and especially they would survey damage and describe what needed to be done before the ship Mm. was lifted out of the water. But I I think it's important not to overemphasize how much could be done from underwater, because the really big stuff had to be done in dry dock. Um, But one reason there was so much civilian diving in New York during World War II was that a French ocean liner, the SS Normandy, I write about this a little bit in Manhattan Beach, was docked in Manhattan. We had seized it from the French when the Nazis, um, you know, prevailed Mm -hmm. in France. And while it was docked along along the shore of Manhattan, a fire broke out, which for a while was believed maybe to be sabotaged by the Germans, but later was determined not to have been. A fire broke out, and in fighting the fire, the firefighters dumped so much water into the Normandy that it capsized and sank. So this was a catastrophe. I mean, this was a huge ship. And it was just lying there yeah. off the shore of Manhattan looking like a, you know, a dead duck. Um, so it, a huge salvage operation um, was undertaken To raise the ship and the goal was to convert it into like a troop ship or, you know, something for the war effort. And salvaging a ship um, means sealing off every crevice so that it becomes airtight, pumping out all of the water and then so that it floats to the surface and then, you know, refitting it for use. So that took a long time, and it became a training ground for civilian divers to work on this salvage project. And, in fact, The New Yorker did a little talk of the town piece about this work. And, in fact, it, I think it was reading that, I think they were, in The New Yorker, this project of, like, having to build a box underwater was described, which I actually used mm-hmm. Um in Manhattan Beach, and that there was one diver whose pieces like shot to the surface, and they had to come back up and get them. Anyway, so that went on for quite a while, and these salvagers were, you know, sealing off the Normandy, which was a gigantic ocean liner again. Um, and finally, it was it was pumped and raised, and it was floated to the Brooklyn Navy Yard, of wow, course. Yeah but after all that they determined that the damage was too great for it to be refitted and it was it was never used again so oh. I, I know but it but it was another reason that civilian diving was such a big deal in new york because of that project
1: my last question is quickly to touch on uh lydia the uh, si- the sister anna's sister in the book and we won't give too much away but It's just a beautiful... um, I've heard you talk about twinning, and we're talking about what it was like for Anna to be dressed in this Mark V suit by two men and how kind of intimate it is. And then contrasting that to the way um, Anna's mother and Anna kind of bathe and dress their disabled sister, that it's kind of... Both are so tender and beautiful. And I'm wondering... um, Obviously, was that intentional to have those two kind of mirror each other?
2: No, that's the kind of thing that seems to happen naturally, ideally in a kind of organic way, and I'll recognize it and be glad it's there, but I don't seem to be good at coming up with that stuff from the top. Lydia's involvement generally in the story was really a surprise to me. I mean, I I could feel right from the beginning that there was some problem with Anna's sister who isn't present in the first scene, but we don't know why. And when I discovered what her situation was, I really pushed back against it with myself, thinking, am I using her as a plot device? I mean, do I want to contend with someone with these issues? It's another whole realm of research of how disabled people were dealt with at that time, and it was not a time when you wanted to be disabled, I have to say. Um, But I found that she was just inextricable and that she felt, far from figuring out how to get her out of the story, which is what I originally was trying to do. It felt like part of the story for me was about discovering why she was so essential and how the action really does revolve around her and anticipating the moment when I knew I would enter her consciousness because she's very mysterious and she's relatively nonverbal. And The question is, what is her point of view? What does the world look like to her? And I knew I was going to th- try to answer that question for myself. And that knowledge was, was something that really drew me through the story a lot. So she, was, she began to feel more and more like actually kind of the heart of it in a certain way, which again, I mean, this is the mystery and the joy of writing fiction. I had no idea that would happen, nor why it was happening, but it was, it felt like I was part of the discovery process. Well,
1: I feel like we were very clever and we didn't give anything away, but we've kind of, well, you have painted a picture of this incredible world. And I have to say, it's my favorite book of 2017. And thank you so much. We could talk on forever, but we'll leave everyone with their interest peaked.
2: peaked. Thank you so much yeah. for um, for the conversation. Yeah,
1: it was lovely. Thank you so much. For more about this interview and about Lit Up in general, visit us at thelitupshow.com. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Lit Up Show. And of course, please don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.